Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Brick by Brick. Today, I'm joined by Yuri Blockin. Shout out to Jennifer Todd for putting us in touch. Um, I've been doing some research on you, and you're someone who follows your like heart and passion, which is why I'm excited to speak to you today. Um, just as a bit of background for everyone who doesn't know you, you're the CEO of Homecoming, which is a startup building tools and technologies to support the essential work of coaches and therapists. Um, you've consulted a therapy chatbot company in the past, which was acquired by Airbnb. You're a founding member of the Heroic Hearts Project, which offers educational, financial, and counseling services to veterans of PTSD. And you dropped out of studying mathematical physics at college before becoming the first employee at Kick which I've not heard that name in years until I, until I researched this podcast, but that's a pretty mental stack because that was a huge company. So yeah, shout out to Jennifer and thank you for coming on. Yeah. Thank you so much uh, um, for this summary. It was kind of fun to listen back <laughs> and just realize how much jumping around I've done actually, but uh, yeah, it's a, it's a privilege to be here and speaking to you. I want to ask you about homecoming and how you came to found the company and all the things around that. But this is quite interesting. I've spoken to a lot of people on this podcast in the psychedelic industry, including like some of the best investors and founders, um, like Brom at Empath Ventures or Dylan from Mindstate. And everyone who's touched psychedelics has, who suffered from something like depression or PTSD before, they seem to have this insatiable drive to then help bring psychedelics or solutions to mental health. Can you talk a bit about your treatment resistant depression and how it came about? Mm -hmm. Sure. So uh, my depression uh, started soon after just around like when I immigrated to Canada, I would say like that was a fairly shocking event to the system for me. I loved my love and I love my life in Ukraine. I wasn't intending to immigrate. My family decided to immigrate and I wasn't fully on board with that decision. But as a, as a teenager, you kind of just move along with the fam. So I did so and I was not super happy and uh, took me many, many years to integrate. Like I was doing well socially and academically, but like deep inside, I just like wasn't happy like in the new land. And uh, it was about a decade. And the depression lasted and got worse over time. And like as many young people going to university, I was like self-medicating with alcohol and it was only adding kind of, you know, gasoline to the fire. And the only glimpses of relief I've had in those days, which were pretty dark otherwise, uh, is uh, the few times when I accidentally and kind of very unstructurally and like not in the perfect certain setting at all, to say the least, did the psychedelics like LSD and psilocybin and those gave me the first time the experience of relief and glimpses of hope like wow wow this like can be different it's going to be a different way life doesn't have to be so dark and at some point throughout like at the end of that decade when things got progressively worse though i love to try and therapy and all the other usual methods i felt like okay if the only thing that has ever truly gave me hope and glimpses of uh so it was psychedelics. How can I do, do this properly? What's the best way to do this? We don't have anything in the Western world, so that must be somewhere else. And that's how I discovered ayahuasca as a kind of as a tradition that kind of fit all the checkboxes I had in my mind. Where like it's a long-standing tradition with a structure and training and rigor about it and lineages of knowledge. And felt like okay, it's like probably the most safe and structured and proper way to do this versus dropping acid with a bunch of people who are drinking liquor nearby in a college dorm, like, which was my first time. <laughs> and so, yeah, I had a, a serendipitously a friend of a friend was apprenticing in ayahuasca shamanism. And that was like 2012, super early days of the mainstream awareness of ayahuasca. And it was kind of even more rare to have a friend of a friend who was doing an apprenticeship and living in the middle of the Amazon and studying it. So it was kind of very, very lucky connection. And I went there and uh, within two weeks, uh, I was able to get to the root of uh, the depression. And uh, beyond that, though, it wasn't just about treating the depression. It was more of a kind of the 
the technical terms from philosophy that I actually have quite accurate here. It's like it was an ontological and epistemic shock to the system. Like it was really kind of a complete reboot of like what I thought life could be and how we know what we know and what is knowable and what is there to be known as well. And it was just like such a mind expanding uh, experience, a worldview expanding, not mind, but worldview expanding experience that kind of not, not in any way negated what I already knew it thought was a great way of being in the world, but more like complemented with a whole other part of it around like, I mean, what traditionally was the, like the area of, uh, of religion or like in our days would be more like psychology and uh, what the kind of pathways of the mystics but it's all part of everybody person every person's kind of birthright like these experiences are accessible not necessarily through psychedelics it's just a part of how we are wired and how our consciousness operates in some specific situations and at higher stages of development and so i just got curious and it was like definitely a pivotal moment and uh, the fact that depression was cured was not in coincidence with that experience it's like that is through that that's how you treat mental health issues it's like through that experience and awareness of like oh wow there's more to life and life can be so much more vibrant and richer than i thought that's that which heals depression with psychedelics interesting so it's almost so it expands your worldview which shrinks the size of your depression in your brain is that the sort of idea it expands the worldview, but also kind of reframes the reasons for why you thought you are depressed. They're no longer valid and they kind of are, or at least like it, they're contextualized in a way that you're not scared of those reasons anymore. And as such, you're able to reframe in your mind, even the very essence of that depression. And then also like with things like ayahuasca, with medicines like ayahuasca, there is an element of, uh, uh, letting out, letting go and release of, uh, uh, what's in you and so you can just quite physically release uh your depression in that experience like on a very somatic embodied level as a mathematician and someone who's explored the mystical what do you think consciousness is and what do you think our role is in the universe how do you justify that Sorry, big question. <laughs> that, yeah, those are big questions. Even like trying to answer that feels presumptuous. Uh, uh, I feel like a 20-year-old me would have an, an answer ready to roll out of tongue. And like, now that I'm 36, I definitely don't feel that confident. <laughs> My current working hypothesis is uh, uh, around the primacy of consciousness is in that uh, sometimes when like in, in mystical circles, people can say everything is made out of energy. And then in physics circles too, like when you look at and study the nature of each phenomenon, even like say solid uh, state physics or uh, material, and you know, I like what, what materials are made of. It's like, if you go deeper and deeper, it's like it all comes down to everything being made out of energy. And sometimes something that's solid is just condensed energy. And so like when people think of energy, I think like, my current working hypothesis is, is that consciousness, there is some relationship between consciousness and energy being the very, very essence of what there is. And uh, I think at some non-dual level, I would not be surprised if there is almost some very transcendental level of equivalence between consciousness and energy and everything being made of consciousness being the same thing as every, everything being made of energy. Uh, but again, that's like, I'm not trying to play layman uh, Stephen Hawking here. It's really just sort of like my current working hypothesis uh, uh, in a very, very loosely worded manner. Uh, and uh, if this is the second question, I was like, what, what is the kind of, what is my model for like, why? Like the purpose of it all? Uh, if everything is energy slash consciousness and we are nothing but, uh, condensed energy and consciousness clusters uh that kind of the what's called the teleology of it all so the direction of evolutionary development uh i think it's for all these clusters of condensed energy slash consciousness to recall that uh the they're all connected 
and kind of keep remembering that until there is a level of connectedness of all energy and consciousness, being aware and conscious of each other, of like really being conscious of itself. Uh, and that's kind of, to me, is the natural course of evolution. And if we look at like how, if we look at very microscopic and microscopic level of like what development is, what growth is, it's becoming more increasingly more and more aware of the parts that you were previously not aware and becoming more conscious of them and then connecting with parts with other people are other nations, other societies or within us, the internal family systems, psychotherapy model, which is now like all the rage. It's nothing but that it's like recognizing the many, many parts within and building relationships and creating an internal family. And, uh, so that to me is the natural direction for where I would go with an answer to the why of it all. That's a really interesting definition for growth, like becoming more and more aware of the constituent parts. Is that, yeah. have I got that right? What you said? Yeah. Yeah. Becoming more aware and kind of building the bridges between them and kind of diluting that sense of illusory separation of those parts. Mm. So they're like more and more as one yeah. organism. I ask, can you extrapolate that a bit? So your company creates digital tools and basically a platform, right? For therapists and coaches to mm -hmm. do their best work. One of the questions I wanted to ask you is for an audience who maybe they've never had experience with a therapist or a coach. How do they help you understand your constituent parts better so that you can grow? And you know, why might someone look, even if they don't have um, depression or an illness, what are the benefits of seeing a coach and what can they help you achieve? Yeah. The way I would approach this question would go back to what we already discussed is like, if we are comprised of parts and there is a lot of evidence in psychotherapy, uh, in modern psychotherapy and specifically I would lean into IFS model here, that we're not just one monolithic person, one mono mind is the term. We're not that. It's a simplified model of personality. And instead, there are like multiple, multiple, almost separate parts in us. Each one has its own almost personality and interests and like needs and uh, burdens. And uh, uh, when we are in our day to day flow of life, uh, it's very easy to blend with one of those parts and assume that you're all you are is just one that part. It's maybe it's that. A uh, person who got, I don't know, like had some traumatic experience in childhood and now they respond with a certain way to angry people, or it's that person who gets triggered by imagery of war and uh, it's easy to blend and think that's all you are. And a coach or a therapist is very well trained to stay in that neutral uh, space. I can say in IFS therapy, we call it the self. It kind of sees all parts from its like slight distance and not blends with them. And can, they can help you to also uncouple like from that like blending with the part and kind of help you see you are more. You have many other parts and help you see how these parts within you are uh, potentially at war with one another and help you kind of help understand which what each part needs and what's the path to growth. It's fairly hard to do. It's possible, but it's just hard to do on your own because it helps that somebody is there and in the grounded neutral state, they just act, play back as a mirror. They're not there to fix you. They're not, of course not. They're, only you can heal you. Nobody else can do that. But it's, they're there to help you maybe give some insight and guidance and play back what they see in the mirror. And otherwise, it's kind of like doing surgery on yourself. It's possible. I'm sure there have been surgeons in history who have done surgeries on themselves, but like, it's not trivial. I guess it helps to have someone who's looking at it from outside your brain as well, because it's hard to notice yeah. your own self because you are living that every day. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's that perspective from an outsider who is specifically trained to be a neutral mirror. Because like an outsider who is maybe less trained, they can also blend with their own parts and kind of have their own like unconscious agendas and they can get triggered by some aspects of you too. And as you start unpacking what's going on in you, it becomes very unproductive it's like it's not really it can help you tactically it will not really necessarily may help you grow in a long-term sustainable way if your goal is to understand yourself better and have this kind of more 
stable state of mind for it to understand what's going on there. Mm. So how did you come up with the idea of homecoming? You, you touched on it a bit there, but talk us through how it came to you and then what you did to action it. I think the first glimpse of the idea was soon after I came back from my second journey to Peru for ayahuasca and when I was back in Canada in 2014 and I felt like there's no way for me to kind of keep tabs on my own integration process like in a way that like how can I make sure that all the insights and energy I carry from that journey how can I put them to life and to action and develop new habits and really make them a part of my life and not roll back to the old ways and I started to, to come up with old methods and kind of keep like creating spreadsheets and creating different files to kind of keep track of my habits and uh, journaling prompts and all that. And it felt like it was quickly becoming pretty wild and chaotic. And then as I moved into uh, my nonprofit work with the Heroic Hearts Project, where we were helping veterans with PTSD, mostly special ops vets in the US, access ayahuasca is a treatment option. Uh, like. Of course, psychedelic integration coaching was showing up as a core need for them to come back home to and work with a coach. And I saw consistently that there was a, a lot of lacking, like a void of tools, like a lack of tools for these coaches to kind of support their clients in between sessions and have all the resources and insights in one place. And uh, just kept showing up to me that like these types of coaches, like holistic coaches, holistic practitioners, like a growing huge audience with tremendous impact on people's lives and yet pretty much nobody was creating tools for them nobody was helping them help others and i felt a calling with all my life i was almost like preparing for this like as a technologist as an entrepreneur and felt like okay it's a, it wasn't even some kind of calculated market assessment hey here's a more opening and in, in, in there there's an audience there it's more like it was more like a calling i could not not do that that it was more like the level of that sort of identity level calling. And uh, I never wanted to be a founder. Like, it's just a very stressful, very, uh, it's a hard job. <laughs> and I was just coming out of another startup where I actually didn't have the best experience. We've had like some tensions with my co-founders and I was definitely not shopping for another entrepreneurial journey. Like if anything, I actually was shopping for a stable job, but then it was felt like, okay, I could not, not do that. I have to do something coming and. It was actually quite an adventure to tell that to my wife who thought I lost it. Uh, that instead of when I left that other startup that didn't work out and decided to start another one instead of just go for a stable gig. <laughs> I have a idea that you sort of kind of, as you say there, um, you develop yourself and then the final boss or like the reason why you developed yourself appears. Um, but when you're, if you go back to when you're younger, like when you're 20 at university, when you're learning how to become a software developer, was there a passion to become a software developer or did it just seem like a good skill to learn? Because it seems to me like you developed your skill set, and then your true passion or calling or reason for doing something didn't show up until you're way older and now you've started homecoming. Would you agree with that? How would you think about that? It's a good question. I got into software development when I was in, uh, I was still like 13 or 12 and it was just very, very fun for me to basically felt like a form of magic where you can think, use your mind, just purely your thought to make things move on the screen. That's how it felt, where I think of something and that abstraction converts into things happening out there and you can't even put your finger where exactly it's happening. So to me, that was like that magic that draw, uh, drew me into software engineering. And I was just skipping class in my high school just to come home and code on my own, just to learn and coding. But then uh, when I went to school, kind of just... I didn't study engineering for at school, I was studying mathematics and I thought that's going to be sort of my way to understand the language of nature and kind of I felt was more drawn to these kind of more existential questions and had my own existential crisis and read too much Nietzsche and all that. And uh, I don't think when I was in university, I was kind of trying to kind of develop useful skills as an engineer. Just when I left 
university and I didn't finish my degree. I wasn't like the best student. Uh, I thought that's the only skill I do have that can like feed me. And I was like decent at it. And uh, also the only job kind of pathway that felt exciting was entrepreneurship. Like tech startups were just, just starting. It was before all the hype with the new startup wave. It was still one. Most people wanted to go to bank after university when if you studied mathematics. And I tried bank bank internships. They didn't really I didn't enjoy them. And I thought, okay, well, the only thing I, I have now is like try startups. And uh, I got lucky that like I, I was invited as the first engineer to kick by a friend who was their CTO and he was leaving for another startup. And uh, so it kind of was serendipitous and uh, not very carefully thought through and planned for like, Hey, I need to develop this skill. It was more like I was drawn to it. I learned it fairly young and I don't think I even like spent as much time owning that skill in university. It was, it improved, but not that much. Then when I was back to kind of, okay, what do I do now? It came back to me as a useful pathway. I've been sort of struggling with this a lot in the last couple of years. It's like, I feel a lot of weight on my shoulders to um, be successful and make sure my family are okay, etc. Because I don't come from the biggest. Um, my family don't have loads of money, um, and I want to make sure my mum's okay and things like that. So in my head, to get there logically requires a plan. But as I'm getting older, I'm starting to re realize that sometimes it seems like you can't plan life, and there's a serendipitous things like that meeting. So if you were to go back, how, how would you look at life? Did you ever plan out ahead or do you, do you have to have faith that if you keep developing skills, the right thing will come to you and it will, will unfold from there? I think it's important to always account for your psychotype and personality traits. And I struggle with like, just like, like big plans, uh, it doesn't really work for me as well. But I do have people in my life who kind of, they refuse to operate without their plan. It's their superpower and it's not my superpower. And that's why I have those people as wonderful friends and allies in my world because we complement one another. And my flow would be more intuitive. And uh, I think the one thing I would have changed is that, and for anybody who is in university right now and uh, maybe in a similar situation I was like when I've had mental health challenges with depression, I didn't take up the health offers from like, like university offered counseling and therapy. And I was too ignorant and arrogant to take that up, to take that offer. And it was free therapy. And like, why not take it? I think I would have been in a much better place much sooner if I sort of like did that when I was younger, I think it was just a lot of wasted time and energy and potential on just like nothing useful like drinking too much and getting into dangerous situations and uh that's something i would have changed like but and maybe in terms of like what i was studying like just listening a bit better to kind of okay it's working out like if, if it's something that's not working out and you just keep trying like there's like sometimes it's about resilience but sometimes it's about reassessment if the plan is an adjustment and maybe like in my case, like I would have just like maybe slightly adjusted what I was specifically studying and gone for some blended program where it's not just math, but like maybe a blend of philosophy and math applied mathematics or like software development and philosophy or psychology. Kind of like I clearly yearned for that blend and I didn't get it from school. So I kind of had to go into, into all kinds of different ways, but, uh, to go back to your question, I think working with a coach and a counselor of some kind who doesn't have to be a formal therapist. Sometimes it could be just like a person you kind of really respect and they are doing some things that you really like that they are doing. Just have that elder in your life is really, really important. And now at this point, I always try to have an elder in my life or even a few to go back to and like people who are like 10, 15 years ahead of me in life. and just to see, because like, I, I think that was like the big thing I would recommend to everyone. And maybe it's even more important than the plan because the plan would probably emerge some kind of plan that works for you. Like everybody has their own idea of a plan, but I think collaborating on some kind of plan like that, but with somebody 
we would consider an elder, like wise elder, like I, I think that would be definitely, I would encourage a younger self to do. Do you have uh, an elder at the moment? And if so, what are the challenges that are next on your plate to deal with? Yeah, I do. Uh, I work with a coach and uh, I also uh, have people in my life that consider like spiritual elders. And uh, for me, the next moves would be uh, a few aspects to that. Uh, so like as a founder of Homecoming, like I think the big one, the big thing is to go from a, this kind of relatively early stage company and still kind of more of a kind of product market fit discovery and kind of crossing that major chasm of like discovering product market fit and kind of really getting into more, more of a growth mode. It's like, I think it's really like, it's not wrong to say there are only like two stages <clears throat> in each company's life. It's like pre-product market fit and post-product market fit because all else, even though you may have like years of growing your company, but to cross that fit chasm, that's like what very few companies ever do. And so I think for me, that's, that's the biggest one professionally crossing that chasm, chasm and uh, it's already a few years. And I, I think it's like, really, really something I kind of aspire to kind of say one day that I did. And uh, I think we're on a good trajectory and uh, yeah, I have some founder, experienced founders working with me in that regard. And then uh, from a personal development perspective, I think it's being a, a good father and husband uh, and son. I think that's, as I get older, as my uh, relatives get also like more mature, it's like important more and more to me to kind of really reach the potential of all those relationships and be a good role model for my son and uh, be a good partner for my wife. And uh, it's a non-linear path for sure. And especially being a founder is not helping sometimes with all the kind of rigor of that path. And so, yeah, taking that aspect to a new level is something that like I certainly appreciate some help with from people who maybe have been family leaders for longer than me. And then uh, from a spiritual growth perspective, I think like it's been already like 12 years working with uh, ayahuasca and plant medicines in a rigorous way. And I'm discovering more and more richness and vibrancy with other modalities and other pathways and integrating like Kundalini yoga and breath work and yin yoga and singing and uh, golden time in the wilderness and uh, kind of getting a lot more multimodal and figuring out how to blend my own path versus kind of just going back to psychedelics all the time. I think it was beautiful and much needed, but at this point I'm much more curious to kind of have a, my own personal kind of portfolio of tools that I use intuitively, the right tool at the right moment, and kind of almost become my own. Uh, guide in that science. And what's the end goal in using one of those tools? Is it to get closer to yourself? Is it to be relaxed? Is it to heal? Um, becoming more whole, like reconnecting all those parts that I mentioned, like becoming more aware of them and reintegrating them into kind of my awareness and just becoming more of myself. Yeah, more of the self. I think that's ultimately the path of growth. Yeah, interesting. I've definitely noticed that a lot. When my um, housemates are away, it's just me. I start behaving differently, acting differently, and being interested in new things. And then when you spend loads of time with other people again, like I, I change. And mm -hmm. I start, I definitely want to start spending more time working out how to stay closer to who I really am instead of getting pulled down pathways where I didn't plan to go. Anything. So yeah, and it's like one of the one great example, and uh, yeah, it's like working with all these tools is never about becoming something, someone else. It's more like a, about shedding the layers of uh, picked up burdens and layers and expectations, and it's fine. Like we all have those. It's like there's nothing wrong with that. It's just almost the the way evolution has designed our individual curriculum. Like we all get our own kind of unique portfolio of things to kind of work through in our lifetime and yeah, like just like picking them apart, shedding the layers, like, and then only to find what was there all along, like itself. And uh, 
yeah, that's the purpose of all those things, my mind. What do you think your purpose of your life is? Well, it's, it's probably that. It's like, the, like discarding that what's not me and like rediscovering that the what's left, that self. Mm. I really want to redo the logo of this podcast and make it the, um, you know, the statue where you carve it away and you find out the, the, the thing within yeah. the middle. Because I feel like that, that seems to be the common theme when I speak to people. It's not mm -hmm. about who you... Like the, it's not about the characters you take on, it's the characters you yeah. take off. And then who are you at the core? And once you get to that person, then you'll be successful in whatever means, in whatever way that means to you. So yeah. whether it's financial or health or whatever, or all of the above. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's exactly that. Like the success will be that. The success will be the embodiment of, of the self. That's the success itself. And, mm. uh, I struggle with, I struggle to communicate that to people because I think people mm -hmm. tend to think it's woo woo or they just glaze over. How, how do you think I should overcome that? Because the whole, <laughs> there's lots of podcasts out there about how to become a millionaire, diary of a CEO, high performance. They're all about the thing. They're all about discipline and sacrifice and all these things I think are very good, but I feel like there's a gap for how do you find out who you are? So how do you make that seem like an attractive proposition for people to learn about? Or do you just need to let people take their own journey? Good question. Everybody has their own journey. And I think at some point you just like have a rock bottom of some kind where unless you start thinking in that way, it will be just hard to go on, you'll burn out or get depressed or addicted. Like for many high performance individuals, like if they're pursuing that for their own, like it can be that your path is to be that high performance individual and you're just more of the self when you do that. It's, it's totally feasible and fine. It's more like that if you pursue those things for the wrong reasons, they're not, they're not intrinsic, but extrinsic or like driven by some of the expectations. That's when you will eventually burn out and hit the rock bottom and either with the help of some coach or therapist or psychedelics or your own reflection and intuition, you will just like recognize that you can't go on. And I think there's like a lot of wisdom, evolutionary wisdom, and just like that being built into the very fabric of reality that like one way or another, everybody will have their own discovery of that. Like that you cannot go on just because someone or society expects you to go on in a certain way. At some point you will need to, really learn to listen to yourself, recognize that there is such thing as the self, first of all. Secondly, kind of learn to listen to your intuition and to the deeper needs and cravings, or maybe you're listening only to a handful of those, but there's like a dozen others that you're not listening than you, yourself that have been ignored and neglected and start kind of treating your yourself as this kind of almost like internal universe that can be listened to in many different ways and kind of once you start listening inside more carefully, that's, it feels like that's the pivotal moment when all else will become more intuitive and you will start kind of just, yeah, on that path. Yeah, and it can still mean that you, and it can still mean that you'll be high performance CEO. It's, it's mm. not contradictory in any way at all, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like stepping off the, not stepping off the gas, but like having that space to imagine and think and be intuitive can actually let you go faster rather than if you just start waking up at 6 every day, going to the gym and just forcing yourself to do that. Sometimes maybe it's better to, yeah, just learn to read yourself and then apply yourself where you best fit in the world with your skills. Yeah. Right. And, and also learn more about your whole self and not just a part of yourself that maybe is very encouraged by society and your own kind of expectations. And could, there could be parts of yourself that could be maybe less encouraged, but like, so you don't even look into them and address their needs and learn about them. And over time it becomes taxing. It can become taxing and eventually you'll have to pay the uh, piper uh, if you don't address those needs. And so 
at some point, I mean, yeah, you just need to have more of a whole picture of yourself. And uh, once that's there, it's like you can still do all the other things you've done before, but maybe in a more sustainable and balanced way that gets you further to kind of your more innate kind of needs and desires uh, rather than extrinsic ones. Mm. Yeah. I'm very interested to ask you about what it's like to be a CEO of a company at the stage you're currently at. So you've got, I'd say, a pretty big team. How many employees do you have now? Uh, we're actually still an early stage company. So like we've had 10 people, uh, 11 people at its peak. Uh, recently, we have uh, restructured the team size to five, uh, five full-time people and a handful of contractors. Uh, given that we're still pre-product market fit, I think that's the appropriate size of the team. And uh, there's a lot of wisdom and uh, in them, like white combinator, for example, uh, they actually have a strong belief that like at this stage companies cannot be more than six people because of the communications overhead is too taxing. And I kind of, I, I, I start to believe recently that like actually there's like the, I think that's, that's the right number. Five, six people is the cap for a pre pro market fit company. So that's where we're at. So did you raise money and then hire the team? Or did you assemble the team and then raise money? Uh, yeah, we raised a uh, 4 million seed round in the early 2022. And we then expanded the team size from uh, 4 to 10 um, based on the premise that we've had early signs of a product market fit uh, in the market of clinics and uh, retreats for psychedelic medicines and therapies. We've had a handful of like major clients. It was kind of fairly frictionless how we got them. So it felt like, okay, we have enough signal to kind of start scaling that and implement growth and product uh, go to market and scalability emotions. As we learned eventually, it was actually early, uh, too early to scale. Uh, what we learned, the market for clinics and retreats and psychedelics was probably still developing and the size of it wasn't as big as we kind of would need to support the full kind of team like that. And so we had to pivot and kind of go back to kind of uh, more of a kind of drawing board situation. And like what we learned is that uh, actually there is a much larger market. It's super adjacent. It's holistic practitioners, coaches and therapists and uh, uh, holistic practitioners at large, 100 plus modalities. And psychedelics is just one of the 100 plus modalities in there. So we haven't, it wasn't a pivot in the sense of who we are serving, it's just we have expanded that market of who we are serving by just like thinking more boldly about that whole ecosystem, which is very similar in many ways and very diverse in some other ways. And so that's where we're at now. How big is that market? Uh, the latest numbers that they've got uh, would be about as much as 1 million practitioners in the US uh, when it comes to holistic uh, coaches, therapists, and uh, practitioners. If you, exclude, if you exclude therapists, it could be maybe half of that, like close to 500,000. And uh, it's a kind of $30 billion market in the US alone, growing like about 7% a year. Uh, and uh, there are a lot of uh, cultural and regulatory changes that are also in favor of acceleration of that market as well. Psychelex is just one of the many, but like another, like, signal that's shifting, for example, like the, the most rapidly growing like psychotherapy model right now is IFS, like internal family systems. And that one is like really, really deeply rooted in like the kind of work that you do with psychedelics or some other holistic modalities. And it's all of a sudden like this major sensation and, and even in the more traditional kind of established psychotherapy circles where you cannot even book a training program for IFS for like 18 months ahead. It's already all booked up around the world and it's not a cheap training either. So it's, uh, uh, there are a lot of cultural signals too. That like this is, this market is the one to watch and I'm really happy that we are smacking the middle of this, uh, community. And so what is your growth strategy or what is your go-to-market strategy? Uh, so as a pre product market fit company, uh, you're kind of, I think there's a lot of wisdom in, the, in this mantra of doing things that don't scale, we're still in the phase where 
I'm reaching out to a lot of people and personally like building relationships and talking to coaches and therapists and like doing that kind of founder sales uh, motion. But also we have been historically very natural uh, at building relationships with uh, other organizations in the space and building partnerships with training programs uh, and educational programs with uh, professional associations and communities with influential practitioners uh, and uh, coach and influential coaches. And so that's, that's really how we're approaching it, building relationships with community leaders, as well as also doing like some direct outbound work with myself, uh, just like talking to people and building relationships. And then if they like uh, the experience, then ex- inviting them to invite their friends. Okay, cool. So for someone who doesn't know anything about how a SaaS company works, I'm going to try yeah. and break it down. So you raised $4 million. Let's say it costs just completely randomly 500 k a year just to operate. That means you've got eight years to find product market fit, which is where, is it where the cost of customer acquisition goes below the profit from each customer? So then it uh, there are many ways to think about product market fit. And uh, really w- what it means is uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be tied to whether you're profitable or break even, even though that's a huge success if you can, if you're breaking even, that's like as good as it gets for this stage. Uh, then your destiny is in your hands completely. But uh, often it's not even uh, uh, that. It's more like a combination of qualitative and quantitative signals around how well you're serving a need in the market and how big is that market. And uh, uh, numbers-wise, it often means that at least at least 1 to 1 to 1.5 to 2 million in uh, annual recurring revenue as a SaaS company, 1 to 2 million ARR. And also there are some measures of uh, how well you're serving a need itself where you, you have this Sean Ellis score is one measure where it's basically trying to understand that like, it's one question test where you ask a customer who was using your product in the last couple of weeks actively, how deeply dissatisfied you would be if this product would evaporate tomorrow from your life. And if 40% or more of customers would say, I would be extremely dissatisfied, then you're sort of like, that's a marker of like, okay, that's a magic number that like shows statistically that's a product market fit. And then uh, also just like some markers around the market depth and your ability to kind of capture uh, a bit of the, like at least one segment of that market. So some kind of uh, unit economics and customer acquisition costs around like how much it takes you time and money to acquire one new customer and what's the mathematics of uh, how much it takes you to acquire a customer versus how much revenue you would expect and average them to bring. So LTV to CAC ratio. Three to one is an excellent ratio. It could be seven to one in health tech you know, SaaS platforms. But uh, those are the kind of typical things you would look out for when uh, assessing for product market fit. But like, there's also a very simple narrational way to describe it. It's um, when you have so much demand, when you start having so much demand for your service that you just can't keep up. It's just like, that's as classic of a signal as it gets where you just like team is constantly on fire fixing kind of issues because there's too many customers trying to start using the platform and it's like wasn't yet even designed to sustain so many customers or like people asked for like many new features and you can't even keep up with those feature requests and like customer support can't keep up with all the answer tickets. It's like, that's a very, very good sign that, okay, if you can't keep up, then like there is product market fit. Okay. That's interesting. So do you think you're close to product market fit have you seen any signs that is it is it a day is there like a period of a couple of weeks where you suddenly cross a line and you can notice it or is it something that slowly yeah. creeps up on you i don't know i've had experiences in my life when it was either one of those things like with kick for example uh it kind of just happened one day like we launched our messenger app MVP on the marketplaces and just like, I remember sitting in the dev, dev room as an engineer and just like had metrics on the screen and I just looked at the metrics and it was like this like vertical line in terms of the number of users signing up. And I was like, hey guys, there's like a bug in the report. Uh, like we need to fix, there's clearly like something wrong with the chart. 
And then we just look like the system is not working. It like goes completely down because of so much demand. And um, it just happened overnight when things went viral on Twitter. Somebody just like started to post hashtag kick me with their username and just like went viral in the uh, first southern United States and then across the whole uh, country. And uh, that was overnight. Uh, it's kind of like the magical success that happens sometimes, but rarely. We've been picking up 1 million users a day for like a number of weeks, which is like phenomenal. Uh, but then like with many, many companies, it's kind of a slow burn where it like takes a few years to kind of very systematically, methodically first discover problem solution fit, where it's not really about the number of customers first, it's really about discovering painful enough problem, a good enough solution and within a meaningful enough market. It's not yet when you scale any of the growth. Once you have enough of a problem solution fit, that's when you go into product market fit. When you take that solution and try to fit it into a market and learn how to enumerate and enumerate like your positioning, your messaging, your uh, channels, uh, your go-to-market motions, strategies, and that's the second phase of this two-part opera of product market fit <laughs> discovery. And I think right now we're like somewhere in between the two. We're like just like finishing off with the problem solution fit, feeling like pretty good about that. And now starting to kind of have a core foundation of like power users and loyal customers who love homecoming. And now we're starting to work with them to kind of scale that number. And so hopefully by the end of the next year, we can have like a few thousand people using homecoming. And that what feels to me would be a good sign of product market fit from my definition of it, I would say like, one to 2,000 of people paying for the product, being very happy, active users, inviting peers and colleagues, and using Homecoming for all their professional needs to support clients, to get better results, to get better at their craft, to refer people to other practitioners, to do their bookings and billings and scheduling and take notes. And basically, that's kind of how I see product market fit for Homecoming. I keep getting loads of questions. It's hard to pick one. Um, do you have any sort of viral loop that you can see forming whereby customers will invite more customers, invite more customers? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I always think about this, like the, what are the product led growth motions we can implement? Uh, there are a few ideas I have. So we are, as part of the homecoming tool, not only there is a tooling layer where it's just a way for you to like run your practice from one place. But also there is a content ecosystem we're developing where renowned educators and practitioners can share their like content and resources for other professionals, for other practitioners, so they can all get better together. And it's a very common behavior for practitioners to always be on the lookout for more ways to practice. And so content-led viral loop where anything within the ecosystem you can share with a client, but also you can share with any other person outside of homecoming. Uh, as a resource, as a content piece, and this could be a loop, uh, like a PLG motion that can get new people into the system. Uh, another one could be around referrals. Uh, I think one part of the strategy is uh, I, I would love coming to enable what's called the collaborative care model, where practitioners can collaborate on the same client. It's very common in the holistic ecosystem when one coach finishes, another one begins, or the coach can refer you to a somatic practitioner or a, a kind of psychedelic therapist or a functional medicine doctor, and they all care on the same case. And so uh, creating a viral loop where you can uh, invite another peer in the ecosystem to either care on the same client, or it could be more like even like uh, an invitation to another peer to start being available for referrals, like, hey, claim your if you're open to receive referrals, claim your profile within Homecoming. Uh, so it's things like oh, that. That's a good like one. That's a good one. Yeah. Yes, it's under content-led loops or like referral-based loops. Is there a discovery layer on Homecoming for um, people seeking care to find healthcare professionals? Not yet. Uh, Many companies started with just being discovery platforms and uh, what we've learned and what they've learned uh, the hard way is that the unit economics is really harsh on acquisition of clients. Like 
it's just like mathematically very hard to have a business out of this unless there are reasons for practitioners to use the platform for something else. And so like we are actually starting with that something else. We're being the, the place where you can actually just do your business, your work with clients. And uh, we intend to eventually grow out of that into a place also where we can get new leads, new clients as we develop understanding of like your success track record as uh, how well clients are happy with you we can then start helping you create a storefront uh your uh your kind of yeah your conversion funnel that can become then like the kind of the call to action that you use in all your uh kind of marketing motions and uh, go to market motions as a practitioner and we highlight all the data all the metrics all the kind of success uh, information on uh, and all your products and services in one place, but also eventually we can also yeah have an update density and diversity of practitioners and have enough data on their quality and who fits what kind of client and have a very opinionated way uh, for client practitioner matching where it's not just what's typically done is almost like a dating site where you just browse through profile pictures of thousands of practitioners and like choose them based on what like a picture and maybe a few words and like some anonymous reviews, which are like, if you're lucky, they're real, but often they're just like fake positive reviews. And so like our hope is that we can create something a bit more rigorous and create like a more individualized matching mechanism that's based a bit more on like learning first about the client and their needs and really understanding what is it that they're looking for and what kind of practitioner could be a great fit for them. And then almost recommend another like a thousand pictures to choose from, but maybe one person, Hey, speak to this person for 15 minutes or maybe three people. So a more thoughtful and conscious way to match people and based on what they need versus just some kind of random directory. That's very cool. It seems to me like the, dream state for homecoming would be where if you need a therapist you go on google and you type in homecoming or you go on the app and you you, you choose a practitioner would you agree with that i think as the end state it could be that like for the from from a client perspective yeah it could it could be that where it's just we don't start with that as a kind of yeah early strategy yeah i think no that makes uh, sense that's you know, right and to do this in a cost-efficient way, we first want to have the practitioners and know about them and know how to help them get better, best results. And then it could be working with clients. It could be also working yeah. with payers as well and integrate with broader healthcare systems. Yeah. Uh, and also That'd integrate with the educators and training programs to ensure there is like ongoing apprenticeship, ongoing professional up-leveling up, up and skills development and this peer-to-peer -peer referral network where practitioners can really kind of send people to one another and like because right now when you speak to practitioners number one ways how they get new clients is not through directories or search or social media it's through either peer-to-peer -peer referrals or client referrals mm. That's very interesting. i was imagining a friend of mine has a company called use verb and they're trying to revolutionize the job application process by replacing cvs with mm -hmm video feeds like on TikTok or Instagram. So it's the same idea that you're saying about therapists. Like if you see a picture of someone and a recommendation, it doesn't really tell you anything. Yeah. Maybe that's something that would work for you in the future. Like if you had a, you could scroll through the therapist and it's like a 15 second video and they just speak and yes. say who they are and what they're interested in. Because that would let mm -hmm. you connect with the person and see if the vibe is right for you, which is important for their therapeutic outcome, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, number one factor in therapeutic outcome is uh, the quality of therapeutic alliance. And when you study like the research on therapeutic alliance, what is it comprised of? It's three things. It's uh, uh, the quality of the bond between the two, the, and then the quality of uh, shared understanding of the goal and the plans. And the goal and the plans are more logistical. But the bond is very interesting because like normally we would think it's the level of education of the practitioner or which modality and tools they use or where they went to school and the years of experience. But really it's how well you connect with them. That's kind of the biggest variable in the success outcome and mm. the ability to exhibit trust and vulnerability between the two. That's number one. And so if we can inflect that, if we can capture that and support that factor, 
uh, I think that's sort of like the very kind of center, uh, the highest point of leverage where what homecoming can achieve and uh, inflect in the world, like mm-hmm. help people get better, become better practitioners by creating stronger engagement and bond between the client and provider and create actionable, actionable insights for how to do that for a provider and for client. And then also even like be able, be able to match clients and providers further on, further down the road based also on how likely are they to develop that therapeutic alliance connection. And uh, that yeah. feels to me sort of the backbone of our kind of, of the essence of homecoming. Yeah, I think it's also really cool that you're doing it the back way and not doing the discovery layer way because it seems that most therapists would probably be on social media and that is the best discovery platform in possible at the moment, right? But if you yeah. build yeah. the back... Most of them don't want to do it. Yeah, most of them actually hate the fact they have to do social media and would drop social media and marketing work in a heartbeat. They, like many of them despise that work and they feel like, I just want to help people. I don't want to do marketing. They're forced into it if they're a solo practitioner. Yeah. And if they're employed by a company that's different, they don't do that. But uh, many people complain just how much they want not to do that. Mm. Is there a reason that you don't do SEO? It seems like your customers will naturally Google search, how do I find clients for my, as a therapist, how to do taxes as a therapist. There must be a lot of keywords that you could rank for and get customers through. Uh, it's a good question. Uh, I think that this really lives in like a, as a strategy in terms of product market fit discovery. And as I said, like, I think we're like, right at the cusp of that point where we found the, the problem solution fit, like what is the problem we're solving? It's like being like the consolidation of tooling being the one place for you to practice uh, as a coach and help your clients. And now we're starting to line up the different channels and strategies. And this could be just one of the go-to-market channels and strategies in terms of nice. SEO for, for those. But uh, up until then, there was like, we had no need to scale. We wanted to learn as a primary objective of that what is that key value we can create? So you find the, the tipping point and then you start yeah. to pour petrol on the fire, basically. Yeah, 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 yeah. Ah, yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. You're, um, you've got a very good board of directors. One of them is the co-founder of Substack. How, how did you meet him and get him on board? And actually, yeah, that's the first question. Uh, so he was the best man at my wedding, but we obviously met oh, no him way. before. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He was a friend of mine uh, from uh, Kick. He was a principal engineer at Kick, and uh, we've been good friends since then. And uh, as for the board, I felt like we do want somebody who is more from a technical and product background, uh, and so he complemented the two board members who are more from the impact and conscious investment world. So they have all invested money and that's why they have a board seat. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And how often do you have to talk to the board and what sort of decisions do they help you with? Yeah. So we have a quarterly board meeting and sometimes when during the kind of critical moments, uh, you may communicate with board members almost like every day. Uh, so like last few weeks I was like speaking to them very frequently and I do have standing meetings with uh, uh, like some of the board members for some time. So sometimes it could be a couple of months where we have a weekly meeting and then just kind of tapers off. So there is an ebb and flow to it, but it's a very close relationship we have with all of them. And they typically help recognize, kind of like a therapist would do, help you recognize the parts that you're not conscious. They could help when we're starting to get stuck and spin the wheels and like maybe need a change in the course. It's sometimes hard to see it yourself as a founder because you're so in the weeds that you may not, sometimes you may feel like, okay, I just need to push through. It's like, you feel like, okay, it's a matter of resilience, but sometimes it's not a matter of resilience to keep pushing through. Sometimes it's a matter of pulling back and taking another fork in the road. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what, the, what's, what a good board can do for you is having that kind of, distance and perspective from the day to day to tell you, Hey, like you should not keep spinning your wheels there. Like, let's kind of try another avenue. Yeah. That's really fascinating. I have a good analogy for this, which might help to bring it to life. I think you'll appreciate it. Um, 
the reason I studied engineering at uni is because of this story. So mm -hmm. I was at a talk at Cambridge University about um, thermodynamics, which was not, I wasn't expecting it to be interesting. But this guy, I forget his name, he, there's kidney dialysis machines that keep kidneys alive between transplants, I believe, or maybe it keeps the patient alive. One of them, either way, there's blood that flows around a really complex series of pipes. And the, the longest you could keep the kidney alive for was three hours. Mm -hmm. um, and he looked at it to try and find out you know, is, why is it only three hours? It doesn't seem like a very big number. And it turned out that where one of the pipes um, was, there was a valve like this in the pipe. So the blood would mm -hmm. flow through and then it would spin behind here, like a turbulent flow. And that would just mm -hmm. kill red blood cells. So yeah, yeah. all he did was remove that valve that was sticking into the pipe. And then you could keep the kidney alive for days. So it wow. saved that tiny valve would go on to save thousands and hundreds of thousands and millions of lives. And wow. just makes you think, doesn't it? Sometimes working harder is not just going to make the problem worse. So yeah. it's good to step back. In fact, it can, it's uh, exactly how burnout happens. And as a founder, we are a high-risk uh, profession for a burnout, like speaking from experience. And uh, it happens not because you work too hard. I think that's a common fallacy. Like, I think it's totally possible to work incredibly hard, like 20 hours a day for some time and not get burnt out. But if it's connected to a sense of progress, and uh, kind of meaningful kind of sense of purpose and accomplishment. And you feel like, okay, I make a hypothesis and it's working out, you're moving ahead. And so it's like, there's a feedback loop progress. Burnout happens when you do like a lot of effort, but there's no sense of progress and you just keep spinning your wheels and digging yourself deeper. And you just keep pushing, feeling like, okay, I just like, it's a matter of effort. And the more you do that, the more your engine heats up and the more you dig yourself deeper. And at some point you kind of cannot keep up and you just, crash and you just can't do that anymore your engine kind of stops working and i feel like okay i'm like too weak to keep pushing but really it's more like well you should not have been pushing in this direction quite some time by now and so that's kind of to me almost uh, a definition of like that kind of strategic feedback it also can help you as a founder individually to prevent burnout and if you have a burnt out founder, it's really kind of hard for a company to be successful. And uh, I think it's one of those kind of underappreciated uh, risk areas for any company that like only recently started to get a lot of attention. How do you know, obviously this depends on the situation, but how do you know when you're wrong and you need to reapply your effort elsewhere versus how do you know when to just keep pushing? It's, or is it's there a no situation. Yeah, I, I don't think there's no way of knowing. It's maybe combination of intuition and uh, if your intuition says hey you're wrong and a trusted uh, elder like be it the board member or a coach or somebody who has a lot of uh, uh, expertise in this domain not just a smart person but like somebody who has done this before a few times say three times if they all tell you like both internally and externally you're wrong you're wrong probably so it's like kind yeah, of this kind of ma ma matrix of uh, cross-validation internally and externally. Mm. And of How course, this it implies a lot of humility that you need to be able to kind of be able to tell yourself that you are like, listen to your intuition, if you're wrong. Because like the voice of ego is usually much louder than the voice of intuition. And it's easy to hear yourself saying, no, I'm not wrong, but that's the voice of your ego. And again, it comes back to what we were talking about earlier when you develop that sense of intuition, you can start to filter between the different parts of yourself. Right. Yeah, and that's exactly. a good example. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You, can, you can almost learn to extend the analogy. You can almost learn the like timbre and tone and octave of each of the voice of each part. And you can know, Oh, that's like, that's the voice of that part or that part. And like, you know how to not mix them up. That's such a great analogy. Yeah. How does it, how does it feel having the, a board member, as your best man, because that seems to me like that would be amazing to have a best friend who you're like together with yeah, in business. Incredible. Specifically, this board member was an independent director. So like I invited them uh, to the board versus uh, 
the investor board members, they're more like those part of the uh, investment. Uh, and we have an excellent dynamic with all of them, but specifically this board member was invited by me uh, as a kind of, as an independent. And uh, yeah, it's like he's a few blocks away. We can go meet for lunch and walk in the park during the workday or after the workday. So it's very, very handy for sure. Just have this trusted uh, ally. Uh, we can connect on a deeper level, but we also have gone through all this personally as a founder of Substack. The, it's exactly the sort of model of an elder where you don't want to have an elder who is, and he's not an elder physically. It's more like I would say founder life-wise, that person would be an elder. And you don't want to have an elder who is almost like so ahead of you that uh, they cannot relate back easily to what you're going through right now. So if I was speaking, say hypothetically to CEO of a $10 billion company, we have very different lives, like very little mm overlap but I'm like somebody who's maybe a couple years ahead a couple milestones ahead so Substack is like of course much 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 bigger but still they're like say series b company they can still very much relate to what it's like to be a seed stage company it's still fresh in the memory and so i feel like that's the perfect distance and uh yeah yeah it's great uh dynamic that way also, I suppose that kind of you can draw parallels with their model and your more model in the sense that I've seen now that their app is driving loads of, um, it's got big user growth, and now people are starting to read Substack articles on the app. Yeah. So now, yeah, I always thought of them as like two similar product categories: vertical stacks for solo practitioners, and just they're doing it for writers, and we're doing this for solo coaches and therapists. But it's just kind of all in one place for you to run your practice, either as a writer or as a coach. And it's a thing. It's becoming a thing, product category for many other verticals. So another one would be that I love to compare is Shopify. So Shopify and Substack are the two companies that I feel strongly that like most like homecoming strategically, just for different kind of vertical. Like, and of course Shopify is so much more developed. That by now they have expanded the enterprise and all that. But they started as a one-stop shop for a solo merchant trying to sell stuff online. So that's the same analogy. Also, Ali, I, I apologize. I do need to jump there. We, I think we are at the end of the... Yeah, yeah. And I have a call with a customer who is like waiting right now. So uh, I, yeah. I need to kind of cut this short. Yeah, that's okay. Just feel free to jump. I'll send you a message after saying thank you, et cetera. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Thank you so yeah. much. It was a real pleasure. I loved it. It was a lot of fun, actually. It was really fun. Thank you very much. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Thank you, Yuri.